give me the pulpit mic. It's fine. All right. We're there in Numbers, chapter number 10. And, uh, of course, we've been going through a series on uh, Sunday mornings and Sunday nights, mainly Sunday nights, but sometimes on Sunday mornings we've been going through a series entitled Wilderness Wanderings. And we are going through a chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Numbers. And uh, this morning we find ourselves here in Numbers chapter number 10. I'm not going to be preaching through the book of Numbers on uh, tonight. Tonight I'm going to be preaching a different sermon, a specific sermon. I encourage you to be back tonight for that. But this morning we're going to look at Numbers chapter 10. And just to kind of recap you or bring you back uh, to, to, to speed on the book of Numbers, the first 10 chapters, if you remember, are all about the children of Israel uh, preparing for the journey that they are about to undertake uh, through the wilderness. And if, if you skip ahead to verse number 11, we're going to go through the whole chapter, but I'd, l- I'd like you to skip ahead to, to verse number 11. Numbers chapter 10 and verse 11, the Bible says this, And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month, in the second year, that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony, and the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai, so I want you to remember that when we start the book of Numbers, they are in the wilderness of Sinai. They're at the base of the Mount Sinai. They've been there for about a year. And here in verse 12, we read that they took their journey out of the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. Uh, and what we see is that they are headed from the wilderness of Sinai over to the wilderness or the desert of uh, Paran. And the, these verses, Numbers 10, uh, 11 through 12, are actually summary verses that cover chapter 10, 11, and 12. Let me just show that to you real quickly. You're there in Numbers 10. Go to chapter 12 real quickly and look at verse number 16. Numbers chapter 12 and verse 16, the Bible says, And afterward the people removed from Hazeroth and pitched. The word pitch means to set up camp or to set up tent. Notice, in the wilderness of Peron. So though Numbers 10... 11 and 12 tells us that they took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran. We see that in Numbers 12, 16 is when they were actually pitching their camp in the wilderness of Paran. So I want you to notice that this is a transitional uh, time in which they are journeying through the wilderness and they're going from the wilderness of Sinai to the wilderness of of Paran. Go Go back to Numbers chapter 10 and this ends up being one of four parts that takes uh, 40 years through the wilderness. And, and again, just to kind of help you uh, remember this, if you remember, the, the book of Numbers takes us through a span of 40 years. It takes us from about one year into the wilderness to right before the children of Israel enter the promised land 40 years later. And just to remind you, and if you want to take notes or if you want to jot this down, just a quick outline of the book of Numbers, chapters 1 through 10 is the first part of this book, and it is the preparation for the journey. What we've been seeing is the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, and God has been instructing them, Moses has been instructing them, and they've been preparing things to get ready for this journey. The the first leg of the journey, or the second, uh, first part of the journey, is what we're going to see in chapters 10, 11, and 12, which is the travel to the wilderness of Paran. We'll see that in chapters 10, 11, and 12. And to be honest with you, that's where the book was supposed to end. They were supposed to go to the wilderness of Paran, and then they were supposed to enter into the promised land. This was supposed to be them going through the wilderness was supposed to be a process that only took uh, several weeks. But as we will see in the next chapter, this gets derailed pretty fast. 
And as a result of the children of Israel and their sin and their complaining and their rebellion, God ends up cursing them and causing them to wander through the wilderness for 40 years. The second part of this book and the second leg in their journey uh, is seen in verses in chapters 13 through 19 when they are sojourning in the wilderness of Paran. They're staying there. In chapters 20 through 21, they travel from, uh, from Paran to the plains of Moab. And then in chapters 22 through 36, we see them sojourn in the land of Moab uh, right before they enter the promised land. Like I said, this was going to take them uh, 40 years. And there's a lot of interesting stories. In fact, probably all of the famous stories you know about the children of Israel in the wilderness are, uh, are probably from the book of Numbers. It's a very interesting book. But the first 10 chapters doesn't have a lot of narratives because it's been this preparation. This is the last chapter. Next uh, time we're in the book of Numbers, in chapter number 11, is where the stories begin. And really is where it all gets derailed. And we begin to see the children of Israel complaining and God dealing with them. And uh, we're going to see all sorts of interesting uh, things that happen to them in the, uh, in the wilderness. And the reason I'm taking time to kind of explain all this is because I want you to understand that this is kind of the, this is the last good chapter. And what I mean by that is this is the last chapter in which the children of Israel are kind of right with God and in a right standing with God. And the very next chapter, they're going to begin rebelling against God and sinning and complaining and all of those things. So I want you to understand that though the book of Numbers is generally a negative book because it's the children of Israel wandering through a wilderness that they were supposed to travel through in just a few uh, weeks, and instead it takes them 40 years because of the rebellion, this chapter in the section we've been, they're still, they haven't left yet, or they're getting the first uh, 10 verses they haven't left yet, and in verses 11 through 12 is where they begin to head out and they leave on their journey. So I want you to understand that they're still right with God at this point, and things are still good. This is still a positive chapter, and I, I say that to say this because this chapter provides a model for how to succeed through our own journey as we go forward in the wilderness of this world. Because here's what you need to understand. The children of Israel, their journey, uh, all, all these different journeys that they've gone through, they all picture different facets of salvation. When they were in Egypt in bondage, that pictured the unsaved man, the unregenerate man and woman who is still under the law, who is still under the bondage of sin because they're sinners. The law has condemned them. Of course, Moses pictures uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as he comes to deliver them out of bondage into freedom. When they cross the Red Sea, that pictures baptism, which is the first ordinance and the first thing that a believer should do after their salvation. And when they're in the wilderness, that really uh, uh, pictures uh, the, the worldly new Christian who should not spend a lot of time in the wilderness. They should be growing, and they should be going into the promised land. The promised land, oftentimes people uh, will talk and, and act like the promised land pictures heaven, but the truth is that the promised land pictures the victorious Christian life. The promised land is a picture of people going into the land, conquering the land, winning battles against the sin of their flesh, against the devil, against the world. It is a victorious Christian life. And look, Christians live in either one of these places. They're either wandering in the wilderness of the world, or they're living the victorious Christian life. And what we're going to do is spend uh, several weeks and many weeks studying the book of Numbers and seeing how it is that Christians 
who are failing, who are rebelling, who are sinning, who are backsliding, how they live wandering in the wilderness of this world. But in chapter 10, we get the last glimpse of what God wanted for them. What God wanted for them was not to wander in the wilderness of the world, but God wanted them to be able to make it through quickly into the victorious Christian life. And this gives us a model for not only what God wanted for the children of Israel, but what God wants for you and what God wants for me to be able to live in the victorious Christian life and not live wandering in circles in the wilderness of the world. So I'd like to give you four thoughts this morning from this chapter regarding how to go forward, how to get out of the wilderness, and how to uh, live the victorious Christian life. And again, I want you to understand, they didn't do this. This is what God wanted for them. This is what God uh, was uh, trying to help them to accomplish, but they chose not to do it. Uh, So we're going to see what they should have done, not what they did, and we'll uh, apply it to our lives. And the the application just right up front is this. This is what you should do. It doesn't necessarily mean it's what you will do. You may spend 40 years of your life wandering in the wilderness. Let me give you four statements. The first one, if you're taking notes, and on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to take notes. The first lesson we can learn from this chapter is this, when we're talking about how to go forward, how to go forward, how to get through the wilderness of the world and get into the victorious Christian life, statement number one is this, go forward at the direction of God. Go forward at the direction of God. I want you to notice there in Numbers chapter 10, in verse number one, the Bible says this, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, make thee two trumpets of silver, of a whole piece shalt thou make them that thou mayest use them for the calling of the assembly and for the journeys of the camp. Of course, we're talking about several million people that are going to be traveling through the wilderness, and God needed a way to be able to communicate with them. There's obviously before cell phones and radios. There's no way to text all these people to let them know what's going on. So God tells them that he wants them to make two trumpets of silver. It was to be a whole piece, uh, and uh, uh, they were supposed to make one piece of silver of these two trumpets, and they were to use them to call the assembly, and they were to use them to, uh, ju- for the journey of the camp. So they could call people together and talk to them and, and, and do the things they needed to do, or to direct them as they were journeying. Now, let me just say this real quickly, just uh, for your own notes. I'm not necessarily preaching on this, but it's interesting that there's two trumpets here, and there is a significance to the number two. Throughout the Bible, you'll notice that different numbers have different significance. Uh, they'll, they'll have uh, uh, things that they represent. Uh, for example, the number three, of course, represents the Trinity. Number six represents man. Number seven is the number of completion. Well, number two is the number of witness or the number of witnesses. And here we have two trumpets that are blowing, and these are two uh, witnesses as to what it is that God wants them to do. And just, I won't have you turn to these, um, but you can jot these down if you like, just as the significance for the number two regarding witnesses. If you remember, uh, two witnesses were required to begin an investigation. Deuteronomy 19.15 says, One witness shall not rise up against a man. At the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. If you remember the Lord Jesus Christ, when he sent out his disciples, uh, to do soul winning, he sent them out as two witnesses. He said, uh, when it comes to soul winning, the Bible says that ye shall be witnesses unto me. And he sent them out, Mark 6, 7, uh, by two and two. He sent them out in Luke 10, 1, the Bible says he sent them two and two. So Jesus, and by the way, that's why we send out our soul winners by two and two, because it is the number of uh, witnesses. If you remember at the end times, 
there is coming two witnesses. Revelation 11.3, I will give power unto my two witnesses. Uh, Revelation 11.4, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks. So we see that the number two is the number of witness. And God had them do these two trumpets uh, in order to be able to direct the people. Now, obviously, trumpets represent several things throughout the Bible. In verse 3, I want you to notice that there's a picture of the rapture. Numbers chapter 10 and verse 3, And when they shall blow with them, all the assembly shall assemble themselves to the at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So when they blew the trumpet, the entire assembly was to gather together. There is a picture here of the rapture because the Bible teaches that there's coming a day. You don't have to turn here. I'll just read this for you. First Thessalonians 4.16, And the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Just like the children of Israel, when the trumpet was blown, the assembly was to gather together. One day, the trump of God is going to be blown, and the entire assembly, the congregation of God, will all be assembled together uh, in heaven. So we see a picture here of the rapture. Look at Numbers chapter 10 and verse 4. But I want you to notice the practical. So there's a couple of spiritual applications there or examples. But notice the practical reason for the trumpets. Verse 4. And if they blow but with one trumpet, then the princes, which are heads of the thousands of Israel, shall gather themselves unto thee. So they blow with one trumpet, then it's the leaders of the tribes are supposed to come. Verse 5. When they blow an alarm... Then the camps that lie on the east part shall go forward. This is directing them as to how to go. And by the way, the word alarm here, uh, sometimes the word alarm is in reference to something uh, dangerous like going to war. But uh, the word alarm just means uh, making a sound or uh, sending a signal, just like Uh, In the morning when your alarm clock goes off, it's waking you up. Well, they would blow an alarm, and then the camps that lie on the east shall go forward. When you blow an alarm, verse 6, the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall take their journey. They shall blow an alarm for their journeys. Verse 7, and when the congregation is to be gathered together, ye shall blow, but ye shall not sound an alarm. So there's different types of blows or different types of uh, sounds that they make with these trumpets that would let them know that's an alarm, that's gathering princess, that's uh, uh, something else that we're supposed to look. Verse 8, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow with the trumpets, and they shall be to you for an ordinance forever throughout your generations. And if you go to war in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets, and ye shall be remembered before the Lord your God, and ye shall be saved from your enemies. Verse 10, also in the day of your gladness. So notice, they're, they're, they're blowing, I just want you to, to, to notice and understand the different reasons for these uh, blowings of the trumpet. They would blow the trumpets to gather the leaders. They would blow the trumpet to gather the entire congregation. They would blow the trumpet in a certain way to let people know we're taking off and, and to have the east camps go forward and the uh, south camps go forward. They would blow an alarm when they were to go to war. Verse 9, if you go to war... Uh, in your land against the enemy that oppresseth you, then ye shall blow an alarm with the trumpets. But they were also to blow an alarm 
when there was a time of celebration. Look at verse 10. Also in the day of your gladness. This is not war. And in your solemn days. These are the holy feasts that God gave them. And in the beginnings of your months, you shall blow with the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices, your peace offerings, and they, shall, they may be to you for a memorial before your God. I am the Lord your God. So notice that the trumpets were used to communicate with the people. Certain When they blew with one trumpet, it meant one thing. When both trumpets blew, it meant another thing. When they blew a certain way, it might mean uh, an enemy is coming and it's time to go to war. When they blew a different way, it might mean uh, we're all getting together for a day of gladness or a solemn day. Uh, when, when they blew it another way, it might mean we're all going to start our journey, start getting ready because we're going to be going. The purpose of the trumpets was for direction. And the point is this. When God wanted them to go forward, he wanted them to go at the direction of God. When the trumpets blew is when they went forward. Look at verse 11. And it came to pass on the 20th day of the second month in the second year that the cloud was taken up from off the tabernacle of the testimony. We already saw these verses, but look at verse 12. And the children of Israel took their journeys out of the wilderness of Sinai, and the cloud rested in the wilderness of Paran, and they first took their journeys. Notice that the first leg of their journey. They first took their journey according to the commandment of the Lord by the hand of Moses. So notice what the trumpets represent. They represent the direction of God. But in verse 13, we're told, and they first took their journey. So they're moving at the direction of God because of the trumpets. But the trumpets represent this, according to the commandment of the Lord. So it's the trumpets represent the word of God. It is God telling them. It is God directing them to go. But notice this as well, by the hand of Moses. Because Moses is the man that is telling these individuals to blow the trumpets, and he's telling them how to blow them and what to do. So we see that these trumpets represent the word of God, the commandment of the Lord, but they also represent the man of God by the hand of Moses. And throughout the Bible, of course, trumpets represent different things. And we've already seen the rapture and different things. But in the Bible, it's interesting to me. Keep your place there in Numbers chapter 10. Uh, we're going to uh, obviously be there this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In the New Testament, you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let me say this. The trumpets in the Bible also represent the preaching of God's word. The preaching of the God's word are pictured in the Bible through the blowing of trumpets. And when the children of Israel were to travel through the wilderness into the promised land, into the victorious Christian life, they were to go forward at the direction of God. And Numbers 10.13 tells us that when the trumpets blew, that represented the commandment of the Lord, the word of God, by the hand of Moses, the man of God. And this is exactly what preaching is. It is the word of God being preached by the man of God. 1 Corinthians 14, look at verse 7. Notice what Paul said to the Corinthians. He says, and even things without life giving sound, he's referring to an instrument, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? And that's exactly what we're talking about in Numbers. This trumpet had to give a certain distinction for them to be able to know, is it time for us to go to war or is it time for us to go to a party? I mean, wouldn't you say those are two different things? You don't necessarily, I mean, it might be a little embarrassing if you show up to a party uh, you know, with, with your sword and, and not, you know, your potluck uh, meal that you're supposed to bring. But it would be devastating 
It'd be devastating if you show up to a battle and because you misheard the trumpets, you know, you didn't bring your sword, but you brought deviled eggs. I mean, that's not going to turn out well for you. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, and even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction to the sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harp? Look at verse 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? So likewise ye, except ye utter, he's talking about preaching and preachers, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. And what he's saying is this, when it comes to preaching, the job of the preacher is not to be fancy. The job of the preacher is not to be impressive. The job of the preacher is not to use impressive words like homiletics or hermeneutics or exegesis or uh, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I don't know. The the job of the preacher is to preach in such a way where we make the word of God plain. Where you don't leave here and and scratch your head. And I hope the prayer at Verity Baptist Church is that you never leave here thinking, I wonder what he was trying to say. Now, you may not like what I had to say, but you shouldn't wonder what I had to say. And when it comes to the preaching of the word of God, and when it comes to the travel through the wilderness, you need to move at the direction of God. You say, how does God direct me? God directs you through the word of God, and often, most often, through the preaching of the word of God. Because remember, we're talking about wilderness wanderings. We're not talking about Christians who are living the victorious Christian life. We're talking about worldly Christians. How does God direct worldly Christians? You say he directs them through the word of God. Well, here's the problem with most worldly Christians. They don't read the word of God. I mean, wouldn't you say that most Christians, most Christians today, they show up to a service like this, and the only time they get the word of God given to them is through the man of God? Now, that should not be the case. They should go home and read the Bible for themselves. But it takes a mature Christian. See, the mature Christian who's already living the victorious Christian life is the one reading the Bible at home on his own. But most Christians are living in the wilderness. And they're not going to pick up a Bible when it's time to make a major decision in their life and ask themselves, I wonder what the mind of God is on this thing. I wonder what God thinks about this. I wonder. They're not going to do that. So what does God say? God says, well, if you're not going to pick up the Bible and listen to the word of God, then why don't you at least let a man of God tell you what the Bible says and tell you what to do. See, the trumpet is a picture of the preaching. It is a picture of the man of God preaching the word of God. Go to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58, if you, if, if, uh, keep your place in 1 Corinthians. Do me a favor, put, keep your place there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. And I want you to get there quickly. But go to Isaiah towards the end of the Old Testament. You got those major prophets, those big books towards the end. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Go to Isaiah 58. Let me show you another example how preaching is pictured through trumpets. Isaiah 58 verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Isaiah 58 1. Cry aloud. Spare not. What does spare not mean? It means don't leave anything out. Instant, in season, out of season is how Paul would say it. He says, cry aloud, spare not. Notice what he says. Lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. This is a verse regarding preaching. God is talking to a preacher, Isaiah, and he says, here's how I want you to preach. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Why do you have to yell so you don't fall asleep? <laughs> Why do you have to be so loud? Because sometimes you got to be loud to get people's attention. 
And, and people often say like, oh, well, you're just trying to, uh, you're just trying to be some sort of a cult leader where you tell us that we have to come to the man of God to hear the word of God. By the way, let me say this. I'm preaching on the subject of cults tonight. I'd encourage you to show up. It's going to be an interesting sermon. But let me just say this. We're, we're not cult leaders here saying, hey, you need to have the man of God direct you. Now, God gave you a pastor, and God expects you to use a pastor. But let me tell you something. The pastor and the pastor's wife have access to the same Bible that you do. The problem with the Christians in the wilderness is that they don't know what the Bible says. They're not reading the Bible. They're not studying the Bible. So because of that, because of that, God said, okay, if you're not going to read the Bible, then why don't you listen to a man who has spent his life studying the Bible? If you're not going to study the Bible, then why don't you talk to Miss Joanne, his, you know, his wife, and let her direct you. And let me tell you something. My wife has read the Bible cover to cover more times than the average pastor in America today. So if, if you're not going to read the Bible for yourself and know what the Bible says, then why don't you allow, because the word of God should guide us. But since the word of God isn't guiding you, why don't you let the man of God preaching the word of God, why don't you allow the leaders in the church that God has established give you biblical counsel and let them lead you through the wilderness? Say, well, you're saying we need a pastor. No, no, I'm not saying everyone needs a pastor. I'm saying you, worldly Christian, need a pastor because you're not reading the Bible. Do you understand what I just said? God speaks through the word of God. Most people need the man of God to explain to them the word of God. And let's face it, and you're, you may not even like what I'm about to say, but whatever. At least you'll know what I said. <laughs> let's face it, most Christians are not spiritual. Most Christians are not spiritual. I mean, we, we just had this funeral yesterday, and 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 and... God bless Brother Sean and Miss Ava. Let me tell you something. Brother Sean and Miss Ava were a blessing to, to minister to through this trial. My wife and I spent many hours on the phone with both of them. Um, obviously, myself with Brother Sean, her with Miss Ava. We spent hours with them in the hospital. And, and, and you know, obviously, we were there with their pastor and their pastor's wife. But, but, but they, they were a blessing because they're living the victorious Christian life. See, they, they were ready for this because they spent years and years and years and years and years getting ready through following the Bible, knowing the Bible, loving God, serving God. It, it's, it's the story of Jesus. Jesus put it this way in the story of the, of the, of the parable of, of, the, of the, the wise man built his house upon the rock and the foolish man built his house upon the sand. Let me tell you something. The trials of life do not get you to build your life on the rock. The trials of life simply uh, let us know and simply expose whether or not you are founded upon the rock. When the storm comes and your house falls flat, it becomes apparent to everyone, oh, they were founded upon the sand. They were founded upon the world. They were founded upon the earthly philosophies of this world. But when the storm comes and your house stands firm, then it's apparent to everyone, they're founded upon the rock. And you know, I'm thankful for Brother Shaw and Miss Ava that, that, they, that they were founded upon the rock. And obviously they're hurting and obviously they were grieving and obviously it was a difficult uh, time in their life. But their faith was in God. You know what scared me was how many people, and I'm talking about our church people, Verity Baptist church people, saying the most foolish things against God. And I think to myself, 
you're not even going through the trial. And look, all that reveals is that you're a worldly Christian. It's shameful and embarrassing. Let Let me tell you something. Let me explain something to you. You do not have the right to question God. You do not have the right. Who, who do you think you are to question God as to why God would do? Look, God doesn't owe you an answer. God doesn't have to give you an answer. The fact that God didn't send you to hell is enough for us to live the rest of our lives saying God knows and God knows best. And the truth of the matter is this. that the, look, uh, we, We've buried more than one baby at this church. And I'm thankful both couples, when this happened, I'm thankful they were both good Christians. It was a blessing to be able to minister to them. Some of you people, I fear the day that, I mean, you get a cold and you're getting ready to quit on God. You get a cold and it's like, why is God doing this? God doesn't owe you an answer. Don't charge God foolishly. And what I often tell people is this, look, it's, you can't get right with God at the emergency room. You can't, there, there, there's nothing, when the trial comes, when, when the, the time of difficulty comes, we cannot make up for all of your failed church attendance, all of your failed Bible reading, all of your lack of spirituality. We can't make up for that. When the storm comes, if you're founded on the, on the sands of this earth, there's nothing we can do. You fall flat. You can't get strong. You can't get mature. You can't get spiritual in the midst of the storm. You get founded upon the rock before the storm comes. And the truth is this. If you're not spiritual enough, if you don't love God enough to not question him, to read the Bible, to be thankful that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins, then why don't you at least let a man of God who does read his Bible tell you what to do, tell you what to think. Instead of making stupid charges and foolishness towards God. It's interesting. You know, what was the whole point of the book of Job? Is that he did not know why God was putting him through this. But he said, though he uh, kill me, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And you know what? At the end of the book of Job, you know what's interesting about the book of Job? Is at the end of the thing, when God restored everything, God never answered him. God never explained to him why he did what he did. Job went through that whole trial. He got to the end. He kept saying, like, I don't know why God is doing this. I'm trusting in God, but I wish I knew what God was doing. And God never answered him. God never told him. And let me tell you something. And and it's interesting because God even highlights, if you're familiar with the book Job, which some of you are so worldly, you've never read it. So I'm not even sure why I'm bringing it up. But let me just say this. If you're familiar with it, God emphasizes the fact that he didn't answer his question by God asking Job a million questions. Are you familiar with the book Job? God shows up and says, oh, you want me to answer you? How about you answer me? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I created the universe? Where were you when I put breath into your body? Where were you? And and God questions him and questions, and God never answers his question. Job went to his grave not knowing. Obviously, he knows now in heaven. Job went to his grave not knowing. And Christians today want to make foolish accusations towards God. Why would God do? God doesn't owe you an answer to anything. And look, and here's what I'm saying. If you are not spiritual enough to know that, why don't you keep your mouth shut? Instead of saying foolish things against God. Foolish things against the word of God. Why don't you allow those of us that have spent time not in crisis reading the Bible, not in crisis praying, not in crisis soul winning, not in crisis being faithful to church. We spent time laying our foundation on the rock of God and his word. Let us 
lead you through the wilderness. Because you're not equipped to do it, obviously. You're not equipped to do it by the foolish statements you make. Listen to me. Don't, don't, definitely not around me. Don't ever speak against God and question God. And I can't believe God. You, you have no right to speak. Who do you think you are? Does the thing formed take to the creator? What doest thou? He is the creator. He created you. And well, well, we prayed and God doesn't have to answer your prayer. Is God your butler? We pray according to his will. Faith is believing that he can, and faith is believing that he will if he wants to. And if he doesn't, you know what? God knows, and God knows best. So go forward at the direction of God. And if if you're not spiritual enough to read the Bible, okay, we're not mad at you, but I've been reading it for years and years and decades. My wife has been reading it for years and years and decades, so how about you come to us and let us tell you what the Bible says? Since you don't, since you spend more time on Facebook than reading the Bible, spend more time on Netflix than reading the Bible, spend more time on pretty much anything than reading the Bible, then when it's time to make the major decision, when it's time to go through crisis, when it's time to go through a difficult thing, uh, difficult thing keep your opinion to yourself and let spiritual people step in. Go forward at the direction of God. Number two, go forward with the organization of God. Notice verse 14. In the first place, because remember, they blew the trumpets. God is directing them. In the first place went the standard of the camp of the children of God. This is the first tribe. They went forward. But by the way, let me just say this, because some of you are going to... There's nothing wrong with grieving. Nothing in the world wrong with grieving. In fact, the Bible in Ecclesiastes says that it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of myrrh. Nothing in the world wrong with grieving and, and sorrowing. But let me tell you something. We sorrow as those, we, don't, we do not sorrow as those which have no hope. We have hope in God. Our hope is in God. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you think or what you say. God knows and God knows better than you. Go forward at the direction of God. And look, all I'm saying is this. I would hope that if I went through a trial like this, obviously I would grieve and be sorrowful. But I'm not going to sit here and, 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 and sit in judgment of God as if I'm above God and question, God, why, would you, why wouldn't you answer this prayer? Why did you do it? I can't believe you would do this to this. It's ridiculous. All you're revealing is how worldly and how wicked you are. Go forward at the direction of God. Number two, go forward with the organization from God. Verse 14, in the first place went the standard of the camp of the children of Judah. According to their armies and over the host was Nashon, the son of Aminadab. Verse 15, and over the host of the tribe of the children of Issachar, this is tribe number two, was Nathaniel, the son of Zuar. Notice verse 16, and over the host of the tribe of the children of Zebulun, this is tribe number three, was Eliab, the son of Helon. Notice verse 17, and the tabernacle was taken down. So I want you to get this. And look, you're reading this, so it's, it's probably hard to picture this in your mind. But those of us who actually read the Bible and say the Bible, you know, take the time to go through these passages. And if you actually just jot this down, what you see is that God is having them go in this progression. Because if you remember, we studied this earlier in the book of Numbers. He had them set up camp around the tabernacle. Do you remember that? Judah was on the east, 
Judah had a camp that encompassed three tribes, Issachar and Zebulun. Dan was on the south. It had a camp that encompassed three tribes, Asher and Naphtali. On the west, you had Ephraim. It had a camp that encompassed three tribes, Manasseh and Benjamin. On the north, you had Reuben. It encamped. It had a camp that encompassed three tribes, Simeon and Gad. All of these were surrounded around the tabernacle. The tabernacle. And then you had the three, if you remember, you had the three families that make up the Levites. And those three families were around the tabernacle and Moses and Aaron as well. So the entire congregation of the children of Israel was pitched and camped around the tabernacle. Now they're getting ready to wander. They're, they're going to march through the wilderness. So he's having them go in order. He sends Judah and Issachar and Zebulun first, the three tribes. So they're walking through the wilderness in an order, in a line. They're going through the wilderness. you got these three tribes. But then, instead of having the fourth tribe, Reuben, what he has is he has the two families of Gershon and Merari. These were the tribes of Levi. And he has them, verse 17, and the tabernacle was taken down. They take down the tabernacle and the sons of Gershon. This is the first family. And if you remember, if you remember from the book of Numbers, the three families, when they took down their job, the Levites, their job was to take down the tabernacle, transport it, and set it back up. The first family, the Gershonites, they were to transport the fabrics. Remember, the curtains, the coverings, the hangings, the cords. And then the sons of Merari, family number two, they were to transport the structure, the boards, the bars, the pillars, the sockets, the pins, the cords. And then the third family, uh, the, the uh, Kohathites, they were to tra- uh, transport the furniture, the ark, the candlestick, the table, the showbread, all those different things. Here in verse 17, but we, we, we got three tribes marching. And then in verse 17, we have two of the families, the Gershonites and the Merarites, they take down the physical tent of the tabernacle. They take down the fabrics, they take down the structure, and then they, and then they start uh, marching. Look at verse 18. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set forward according to their armies and over their host with Eliezer, the son of Sheduer, verse 19, and over the host of the tribe of the children of Simeon, that's tribe number five. So tribe number four was verse 18. Tribe number five, the children of Simeon, is verse 19. Shemiel, the son of Zeruiah, verse 20, and over the host of the tribe of the children of Gad, that's tribe number six, was Elisaphah, the son of Deuel, verse 21, and the Kohathites. Now, notice, notice in verses 18, 19, and 20, we have the next three tribes. Tribe number four, the camp of Reuben. Tribe number five, the children of Simeon. Tribe number six, the children of Gad. Then in verse 21, we have uh, the family of the Levites, verse 21, and the Kohathites, this is family number three, they transport the furniture, the ark, the candlestick, the table, the showbread. Notice they set forward bearing the sanctuary. Now, if you compare that to verse 17, verse 17 ends this way. They set forward bearing the tabernacle. That's the tent. Verse 21, they set forward bearing the sanctuary. That's a reference to the furniture inside. It is the holy things. So they go forward carrying these holy objects, the ark, the, cov- uh, the, the table of showbread, the candlesticks, uh, the lamps, all those things. Then notice verse 22, tribe number seven, Ephraim. And the standard of the camp of the children of Ephraim set forward according to their armies, and over his host was Elishama, the son of Mahud. Tribe number eight, verse 23, Manasseh. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Manasseh was Gamaliel, the son of Peruazer. 
Look at verse 24, tribe number 9. And, and over the host of the tribe of the children of Benjamin was Abidon, the son of Gedeonai. Look at verse 25, tribe number 10. And the standard of the camp of the children of Dan, that's tribe number 10, set forward, which was the rearward of all the camps throughout their hosts, and over his host was Ahizer, the son of Amishadai. And notice, tribe, it says it's the rearward because this is the last section. The camps, if you remember, God divided them into four sections. Remember we learned about the ox and the lion and the eagle and the man. Um, he divides the 12 tribes into four sections, three tribes per section. So this is the last section, starting with Dan, verse 26. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Asher, tribe 11, was Pagiel, the son of Ochran, verse 27. And over the host of the tribe of the children of Tali was tribe 12, was Ahira, the son of Enon. So I want you to notice that they are traveling not only at the direction of God, but they're traveling at the organization of God. God tells them, I want you to do it this way. Judah first, Issachar second, Zebulon third. Now, here's how we would do it. We would do it because we, we don't like to listen. So we're like, Judah first, Issachar uh, second, Zebulon first. And then, you know, if we were like a teenager, we'd be like, oh, I know, I know, I know. You have to tell me, I know. Then, then Reuben, then Simeon, then Get. It's like, no, no, no. No, well, I mean, you said Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, so next is going to be Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. And Moses, the man of God, would have to say, why don't you just listen? Why don't you just shut your mouth and listen? Because here's what God wants. He wants Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, and then he wants Gershon. Gershon? Yeah, he wants Gershon. He wants them to take down the, temp- the, the tabernacle, take down the fabric, get it all together, and then he'd start going, okay, and then after that, Reuben, no. Just stop. Just, this is what I want to say to people. Just stop. Stop making decisions. Stop thinking. You're not good at it. Just listen to what the Bible says. Listen to what God says. And if you don't know what the Bible says, then listen to the man of God. No. He says, Gershon takes down the fabric. We're not going to leave the poles just there by themselves. So Merari's going to come in, take down the structure. Then they're going to go. Then Reuben. Then Simeon. Then Gad. And they're like, okay, is it Ephraim next? No. Then the Kohathites. They have to take the furniture, the ark, the candlestick, the table of showbread, the lamps. Then Ephraim, then Manasseh, then Benjamin, then Dan, then Asher, then Naphtali. You say, what, what is God doing? God is telling them to do it, but he's also telling them to do it in a certain way. Did you keep your place in 1 Corinthians? Look at verse 14, 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Here's what the Bible says. Let all things be done decently and in order. You know what? I just got done preaching this. I preached it here. I preached it in Fresno. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I just I can't help but see it. I preached a sermon about the fact that we are to do things, not only the right things, but we are to do them the right way after the due order. God does, look, God wants you to do the right things, but he also wants you to do them the right way. Getting married is a good thing, but there's a right way to get married. Do you understand that? Having children is a good thing, but there's a right way to have children. So I don't understand. Here's the wrong way to have children. Here's the wrong way to do it. Get pregnant, then married. That's not let all things be done decently and in order. That's not after the due order. You know what God wants? God wants Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gershon. You know what God wants is marriage, then children. 
And what I'm saying is in all areas of life, God gives us organization. God tells you how to have a marriage. God tells you how to raise your children. God tells you how to live your life. God tells you every. This Bible tells you everything that you need for life. And we need to just do it the way God said to do it. And if you don't know what God said, then find someone who does and listen to them. Find a man of God. Find a spiritual pastor's wife. Find some spiritual leader who spent time in the word, spent time in prayer, has the mind of God, who doesn't have uh, their, their mind filled with all this worldliness from the world. And, and, and ask them, what is, I don't know what the Bible says. Can you tell me what the Bible says about this? And then do what they say. Do things the way God said to do them. You say, but why, why would God do this? I mean, it's kind of random. It seems random. Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Gershon, Merari. They're not tribes. They're families. Go to Colossians chapter 3. You're there in 1 Corinthians. You go past 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You're like, you're a nicer at the funeral. This ain't no funeral. Colossians chapter 3. Why did God have them do it this way? You know why? This is my belief. When they pitched, they were to be surrounded. They were supposed to surround the tabernacle, which was a picture of the presence of God. Now they're traveling in a line through the wilderness. So God says, I want to intermingle my tabernacle between the people. He said, I don't want, here's what I don't want. I don't want Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali, and then on Sunday morning only, God. Did you get what I just said? He said, I want Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and then on Monday, God, and then on Tuesday, God, and, and Reuben, Simeon, and then on Wednesday, God, Gad, Ephraim, and then on Thursday, God. He said, I don't want one day. I don't want one section. I don't want one part of your life. He said, I want all of it. God wants to be intermingled through your entire life. Amen. Colossians 3, 4. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what every Christian life should be and unfortunately is not. When Christ, who is our life. Don't tell me God is your life when you give him one hour a week. God is your life when you give him every day of every minute. When you give him everything. When you say everything I have is God's. Everything I own is God. Everything I have came from God. When you say even my children are God's. When you can stand up like Job and say the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And I'm not going to question him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. God is your life. when he, what, what, can, what, would God, what could God take from you that would cause you to quit on him? That's your God. Well, if I lost my house, then that's your God. Well, if I lost my car, that's your God. Really, is that your God? People quit on God. They lose a $16 an hour job, and they're like, mad at God. $16 an hour! Or even worse, some unemployed person shows up to church. We teach them a little bit about character, responsibility, and dignity. Then they get a $16 an hour job and quit on God. They're like, really? That's all it took to, for you to sell out, huh? That's all you're worth, $16 an hour? Wow, that's amazing. For some of us, God is our life. And God doesn't just want your Sunday. He doesn't just want your Wednesday. He wants all of you. He wants everything. He wants you to love Him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your mind. He wants all of it. He wants to be intermingled in your life. So as they wander through the wilderness, He says, spread the ark through the people. 
spread my presence through the people. I want them intermingled. And here's what I'm saying. You can spend 40 years of your life wandering in the wilderness, or you can move into the victorious Christian life. Say, why are you preaching like this? So you won't miss me when I'm gone for 10 days. (laughs) Go forward at the direction of God. And go forward with the organization of God. Don't just do what God tells you to do. Do it how God tells you to do it. And if you haven't been spiritual enough to spend time in your word, to spend time in the Bible, to be reading the Bible, studying the Bible, look, can you at least identify and be honest enough and tell yourself, I'm a worldly Christian. I don't read the Bible. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a soul winner. I'm, not, I'm barely consistent to church. I'm not, you know, can you at least be that honest with yourself and say, I don't know what the Bible says. So let me find some pastor or some pastor's wife who has spent their life with God in the center and let me let them direct me. Let Moses blow the trumpet and tell me what to do and tell me how to do it because I'm not there yet. Now, you should get there. But experience tells us most Christians never get there. Most Christians never get to the point where they can say, Christ, who is our life. Number three, go back to Numbers chapter 10. The Bible tells us this quick story here in Numbers chapter 10. They're they're getting ready to go. They're going forward. Walking out of the wilderness of the world, and they're supposed to be walking into the victorious Christian life. I hope you will. I hope you won't get derailed like the children of Israel did and spend 40 years wandering in the world. Spend 40 years wandering in the wilderness of the world. How to go forward. They should go forward at the direction of God. They should go forward with the organization from God. It's interesting because there's this really like unique story here, and it seems kind of it seems kind of odd where it's placed, but it's there for a reason. Let me show it to you. Numbers ten, verse twenty-nine. And Moses said unto Hobab, "That's that's a good name. You should name your kid that." <laughs> Moses said unto Hobab. The son of Raguel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law. Remember we met Moses' father-in-law in Exodus chapter 20. Also goes by the name Jethro. Another good name. Moses' father-in-law. We, we are, so Moses is speaking to Hobab, the son of Raguel. So this is his brother-in-law. And here's what he says. He says, we are journeying unto the place of which the Lord said, I will give it you. Come thou with us. And we will do thee good. For the Lord has spoken good concerning Israel. And he said unto him, I will not go, but I will depart to mine own land and to my kindred. So Moses said, hey, we're getting ready to go into the promised land. We're getting ready to go live the victorious Christian life. And then he says to them, he says to Hobab, he says, why don't you come with us? Look at, that, look at verse 29. Look at this little phrase in the middle of verse 29. Come thou with us. And in verse 30, Hobab says, and he said unto him, I will not go. So what does Moses say? Verse 31. And he said, leave us not, I pray thee, for as much as thou knowest how we are to encamp in the wilderness, thou mayest be to us instead of eyes. And, if, if, and it shall be, if thou go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will we do unto thee. It's an interesting story. They're getting ready to go, and as they're going, God takes the time to give us a little story here 
where Moses is speaking to his brother-in-law, Hobab, and he's saying, come with us. Come with us. And what we can learn from that is this, that when we go forward, when we go forward in the Christian life, when we go forward in our Christian maturity, when we go forward out of the wilderness of worldliness and into the victorious Christian life, we should go forward at the direction of God. We should go with the organization of God. But you know, don't ever forget this. Go forward trying to reach other people for God. Moses wasn't content just going to the victorious Christian life on his own. He was trying to bring people with him. He says, come with us. He says, come thou with us. And he, and, and he says, I will not go. But notice, he doesn't drop it. Moses says, leave us not. And the interesting thing is in, in verse 33, we're never told here in Numbers if Hobab came or not. Because in verse 32, uh, in verse 31, he says, leave us not. In verse 32, he's trying to convince them. He says, if thou will go with us, yea, it shall be that what goodness the Lord shall do unto us, the same will do, will do unto thee. But then in verse 33, begins a new paragraph. And they departed from the mount of the Lord, three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. So we don't get an answer. He doesn't say yes or no. He just says, he's, Moses says, come with us. He says, no. He says, no, 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 come with us. It's going to be good. You're going to like it. It's going to be great. The blessings of God are going to be upon your life. And then they just go. And they departed from the mount of the Lord. So it doesn't really tell us whether he went or did not go in the book of Numbers. What's interesting is that the Bible does tell us that Hobab went. Let me show it to you. Go to Judges chapter 4, real quickly. Judges chapter 4. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. Judges chapter 4, verse 11. Now in Judges chapter 4, we're in. We're past Joshua. We've conquered the land. Of course, the book of Joshua is the victorious Christian life. The, the life that's right with God, the book of Judges is the backslidden Christian life because they're getting backslidden in the book of Judges and they're going back into bondage and God has to free them over and over again. In Judges chapter 4 and verse 11, the Bible says this, Now Heber the Kenite, Heber the Kenite, notice this, which was of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Now, some people get confused here and they think there's a contradiction in the Bible because they'll say, well, here the Bible says Hobab was the father-in-law. But what it's saying is, which was of the children, the father-in-law of Moses. Because Hobab, of Hobab, is, a, is, is referring to the fact that Hobab is one of the children of the father-in-law of Moses. But when we get into the promised land, we have Heber the Kizanite, which was a descendant of Hobab, in the land of Israel. So that tells us that back in Numbers chapter 10, when Moses invited him to come, he came. Moses brought his brother-in-law with him into the promised land. Moses went forward trying to reach others for God. Go to John chapter 1 if you would. John in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 1. Look at verse 37. Say, if you preach like this, you're never going to grow the church to 400. You know, our church may grow to 400 when we get into that new building, but you know what I don't want is 400 worldly Christians is what I don't want. 400 Christians that question God when they get a cold. We don't need that. I want some Job's. I want some strong Christians. 
Some strong Christians who say, hey, I already know what the Bible says. I don't know what God says. I'm going to ask you anyway, Pastor, but I already know what you're going to say because I already know the Bible. I'm just getting confirmation. That's the kind of Christians we want. Not the kind of Christians that show up and they simply inform us, not, you know, people, sometimes people are like, I'd like to meet with you, Pastor. And then they, they, they tell me something and I, and I think to myself, like, was there a question there? I, I don't remember. I didn't, I didn't hear the inclination. Like, what was the question? You're not asking me anything. You're just telling me. And look, I don't give unsolicited advice. People tell me all sorts of stupid things and I'm like, you asking me a question? No, I'm just letting you know. Okay, go ahead and destroy your life. But if you're smart, if you're smart, you read the Bible. You're smart, you pray every day. If you're smart, you'd be a soul winner. If you're smart, you'd love God and follow God, and then you wouldn't have to make the look. Just having the word of God in your heart allows you to be able to see the, the life and the events of life through the lens of God. But you can't do that in the emergency room. So if you've not done that, find someone who has. Say, Pastor, I don't know what to do here. Tell me what the Bible says. How should I think about this? Don't come inform us and tell us what you're going to do. I don't care. Do whatever you want. I'm not a cult leader. You have to ask and tell me anything. Do whatever you want. But if you have a question, ask the question, and then why don't you follow what the Bible says? Go forward at the direction of God. Go forward with the organization of God. Go forward trying to reach others for God. Look at John 137. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said unto them, What seek ye? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He said unto them, I like, I like this passage because it reminds me of Moses. He says unto them, Come and see. You know, obviously we want to get people saved. We want to, all of that. And you, we should try to get people saved. But it's not just enough to get your family saved. You got to tell your friends and family, Hey, come and see. What's going on at that church over there? I've noticed your life has changed a lot, you know. Hey, let me tell you something. If you do the Christian life right... If you do the Christian life right, they'll look at, they, at first they'll mock you, at first they'll sneer at you, at first they'll, they'll say, you're in a cult. But then they'll start realizing like, hmm, their marriage is better than my marriage. Their children are better behaved than my children are behaved. <laughs> they seem happier than I, I'm miserable. I, I have to follow, I have to follow all these adrenaline rushes in order to be happy. I can't be happy unless I'm smoking something, sniffing something, injecting something, drinking something. They seem to just have the joy of the Lord. They don't even drink at their weddings. <laughs> you say, how do you explain it? Sometimes you just got to tell people, come and see. Hey, hey, come and see that the Lord is good. Come and see that, that, that God will bless you when you live the victorious Christian life. Look at verse 40. One of the two children... Heard one or two of uh, which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, uh, son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is my interpretation of stone, that they following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find the Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Look at verse 46. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said unto him, Come and see. You know, we should be trying to bring people with us. And if you say, Well, I just got saved. I'm still living in the wilderness. I'm still a worldly Christian. Hey, you know, here's the one good thing about being a worldly Christian is that you probably have a lot of unsafe friends. So why don't you try to bring them with you? Why don't you bring Hobab with you into the promised land? Bring Hobab with you into the victorious Christian life. Amen. 
You say, I don't, I don't, have a, I don't know, how, how do I invite my family and friends? Well, I'm glad you mentioned that. We have this special day called Family and Friend Day. Hint, hint. I don't know how uh, you know, subtle the hint is. Who should I invite for family and friend? Uh, I don't know. Maybe your family and friends. Maybe your Hobab. Maybe your brother-in-law or sister-in-law or brother or sister or whoever. Say, what do I say? Tell them, hey, I want you to come and see. Come and see that the Lord is good. Come and see that there is a Christian life that you can lose a child and still have joy in your heart. That there is a peace that passes all understanding. Come and see that it is possible to live your life in such a way that you can lose everything. You can be a Job and lose everything and say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. That's something the world can't give you. So just come and see. I said, number one, go forward in the direction of God. Number two, go forward with the organization from God. Number three, go forward trying to reach others for God. Number four, and we'll be done. Look at Numbers 10.33. And they departed from the mount of the Lord three days' journey. And the ark of the covenant of the Lord went before them in the three days' journey to search out a resting place for them. And the cloud of the Lord was upon them by day when they went out of the camp. And it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said. This is often what what we're going to read here at the last two verses of this chapter. This is often referred to as Moses' battle cry or the battle cry of Moses. So get the picture. You have the cloud that's leading them through the wilderness. The cloud comes up off the, the uh, sanctuary, the tabernacle, and begins to move. And when it does, they blow the trumpets and begin to follow the cloud at the direction of God, with the organization of God, trying to reach people for God. And as they're going through this wilderness wanderings, as they're wandering through this wilderness... They don't know what befalls them. They don't know what will come before them. But as the cloud goes, look at verse 35, and it came to pass when the ark set forward that Moses said, so the cloud goes, the ark is going forward, they're following the presence of God. Moses said, here's what Moses said. This was Moses' battle cry. Whenever they began to go, he would, he would say this as they went, rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate uh, thee flee before thee. And then when it rested and when they came to an end, verse 36, and when it rested, when it stopped, he said, return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. It's interesting to me that Moses goes forward in the wilderness. They have the trumpets blowing and the trumpets directing them, the organization of God. The only thing that these people, as they were leaving, every time they would leave, if they were close enough to Moses, what they would hear Moses say is this. He would raise up his voice like a trumpet and say, Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered, and let them that hate thee flee before thee. And as they were coming to an end, and as they were coming to a rest, if they were close enough to Moses, they would hear him say, Return, O Lord, unto the many thousands of Israel. What can we learn from that? Remember, we're learning how to go forward in the wilderness, into the victorious Christian life. You ought to go forward at the direction of God. You ought to go forward with the organization from God. You ought to go forward trying to reach others for God. Here's the last point. We'll be done. You need to go forward with with confidence in God. This was Moses expressing his confidence in God. Moses didn't know what enemies lay before him, but he knew this. If the Lord be for us, who can be against us? 
Rise up, Lord, and let thine enemies be scattered. Let me tell you something. In the Christian life, you and I need to go forward with the confidence of God. With confidence in God. You may not have all the answers. You may not know what lays ahead of you. You may not know why it is that God is doing or what it is that God is doing. But you can know this, that God knows and God knows best. And I can go forward with the confidence of God. Knowing that whatever God decides, he knows and he knows best. Knowing that whatever God decides to give me and whatever God decides to take from me, he knows and he knows best. If you're going to go for, if you're going to come out of the wilderness of worldliness and enter into the victorious Christian life, you got to go forward with confidence in God. Let's bow our heads and I want to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And we thank you for these passages of Scripture. They teach us and they challenge us. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be Christians who are living the victorious Christian life, who are moving forward in the Christian life. Lord, help us not to be worldly Christians, wandering in the wilderness of the world, not ready for the trials and battles that may befall us. And if we find ourselves there, if we find ourselves in the midst of a battle, in the midst of a journey, and not prepared, help us at least be humble enough to say, you know, I don't know. Let me find a man of God. Let me find a godly pastor's wife. Let me find someone who's already devoted their life to God. And let, 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 let me ask them what the Bible says. Lord, I pray you'd help us to go with confidence in you. Lord, help us to never have so much pride that we would dare to open our mouths and question your goodness to us. We know that Jesus doeth all things well. When it comes to our children, we love them well, but Jesus loves them best. And help us to always go forward with the confidence in God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray.